This is 100% Ska, your weekly dose of upbeat tunes spinning on the wheels of steel, with your host, DJ Ryan Midnight. Roll up the rug, grab your favorite drink, and let's dance. Welcome to another edition of 100% Ska. I'm your host, DJ Ride Midnight, as always, broadcasting from our secret location deep in the heart of Jersey City, right in the shadow of downtown Manhattan. Uh, you just heard Disordin Publico, 
that was Los Zombies Están de Moda. Um, if you can potentially tell uh, by the chorus, the little chomping sound of zombies at the end uh, probably gave you a good hint. That was all about our favorite undead monster. Uh, it is a chilly, dark day here because it is getting into uh, the end of fall and uh, winter looms uh, off in the distance, um, just a month away. Um, but you know what? little Jamaican rum helps uh, keep that away. And as always, we are uh, being fueled by Jamaican rum to record this very fine podcast. Um, what also makes this a very, very fine podcast uh, is that uh, we have a uh, interview uh, lined up for you in just a little bit uh, from the director of the new documentary Rude Boy, the story of Trojan Records. Uh, that director, uh, Nicholas Jack Davies. Uh, I had a chance to speak with him uh, last week, right before uh, I saw the uh, the documentary. Uh, it was a very little, it was a very excellent documentary. Um, I really, uh, I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit uh, later, but uh, just to say, um, I thought it was a really great uh, overview of the, uh, of the label, especially for people that might not be too, too familiar uh, with Trojan Records. Uh, I thought it was a really good introduction to the label, kind of like the rise and fall um, and also, of course, uh, some of the most excellent music uh, that the label was able to put out. So in a little bit, uh, we're going to have that uh, interview. But first, uh, to whet your appetite, uh, or I guess we'll play listen to some Trojan songs uh, a little bit later um, after uh, the interview. But um, right now, we're going to listen to a little bit of music, and uh, we'll see you in a little bit. Uh, to start off this set, this is Monkey Shop with Tomorrow We May Know, right here on... 100% ska. I didn't know what 
welcome back. This is 100% Ska. I'm your host, DJ Ryan Midnight, and let me tell you about what you just heard. Uh, so starting off the, uh, or I should say, uh, finishing off that set there, uh, that was Heavy Manners with uh, Get Me Out of Debt. Uh, before that, Napoleon Solo with uh, Nobody Told Me. Uh, Matamoska with Doom Boogie coming off of their latest 7-inch from Steady Beat Records. And starting off the set there was Monkey Shop with Tomorrow We May Know. So, yeah, let's uh, listen to an interview, shall we? So, um, yeah, like I, I spoke with uh, the director of uh, Rude Boy, the story of Trojan Records. Uh, his name is Nicholas Jack Davies. And uh, let's listen to that uh, right now. So today I'm speaking with uh, Nicholas Jack Davies. He is the director of a brand new documentary that is just coming out called Rude Boy, the story of Trojan Records. It is currently making the uh, the festival circuit right now. And so, uh, Nicholas, um, again, thank you for for taking the time to speak with me today. And what I wanted to ask... What I wanted to ask, just just straight out of the gate, is what drew you initially to uh, to telling this, to wanting to tell the story of Trojan Records? Uh, well, the being a fan of the music, um, I'm obviously, uh, although you can't tell on the radio or a podcast, I'm not um, in my seventies, and I wasn't there when it was actually actually all made originally. But the music came to me through the songs that I grew up with, um, so I knew the music well. And always felt that it was, you know, although I knew it was Jamaican and early reggae and ska and rocksteady, I, I, I didn't, um, I never saw it as anything other than British. So it was always something that I just felt was part of the culture I grew up in. Friends of mine's families would have been part of that same scene back in the 60s. So I had a sort of personal connection to it because of where I grew up in London and, 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 and the music I listened to as a teenager. But the when it came about, it came about in a sort of commissioned way because they, there was a 50 years since it forms coming up. Um, and usually anniversary is a good reason for people to start thinking about whether you could get people, audiences to watch things. Um, it, it sort of fell at my door to a producer friend of mine and I was attracted to it because I knew the music and I knew the scene and the, and the stylings and the, uh, the sounds but I felt it was something that we could really modernise by telling the context of it because it felt very relevant for today. Um, so we made a, we tried to make it as much about the record company which was brilliant in its own right and the music which is excellent and will live forever and the style and the way they looked was important. This idea of a social context to what was going on, you know, about immigration and integration and cultural sharing that felt very relevant and exciting and something I really wanted to try and frame the music in. So personally, that, that was how, that's how I sort of ended up pitching it and then, then we started making it. So you did mention that, uh, you know, this was a essentially a commissioner or a collaboration piece with uh, with BMG and, and, and via Pulse Films. But as, as, a, as a filmmaker, were you you given were you did that influence your ability to create the film or kind of tell the story as you wanted to tell it through your own interpretation or was was it a film that the 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 label wanted to see and then you know kind of backfill from there um without sounding like i'm making it up uh no there, there was no there was no heavy influence on me to do anything uh we just we had utter conviction that the way to do it was not to be encyclopedic about it because you, you know I'm sure uh, you know if, if you meet people that are really into Trojan and Scar Rocksteady and all that kind of music there are people that know so much about it um, down to the catalogue numbers the ver different versions and the Trojan heads a go go and we realised actually that that wasn't the audience a little bit and so there was a freedom to make it, the film we wanted to make you know like it would mention these tunes but you can't no one wanted to make a very encyclopedic film. 
which kind of played into my hands in a way because they, everyone got excited about that. There's no archive really of those artists, so sort of to form ideas about how we could tell the story visually. And, and to be honest, was given free range to make something different. And, you know, like anything, like there's probably five directors working in the world that don't have, you know, some, you know, have to in some way win the job. You know, you have to make, convince people that you, you, you're going to make a great film and people want you to make something different that stands out. And that's the only real influence I had from outside forces. Like we were really amazing sense of autonomy, really. And I think that, that I think mainly because the, my approach was to try and put it in the words of the people, to not have a narrator from now or to not control the story in that way it was to try and like go okay well let's go find the, these pioneers and let them speak for themselves and then sort of build a tapestry of them talking fairly democratic you know mm-hmm. so I think there's a lot of it you can't manhandle it's just what they say and they're their memories and you're not trying to go this is the absolute truth it's this collection of people's visions of their memories sort of come together to tell the wider stories you know you know so in a way I was very privileged to not have to really react to any any sort of produce feedback in that way obviously people watch it and you know you, you show films to anybody don't you when you when you want people's opinion you're so close to them and of course we showed showed it to the people of trojan and they had thoughts about certain things factually like you know they were really helpful with like going you're going to show this record cover it's got to be this one if you want to have this you've got to use it you know that kind of stuff is incredibly helpful not re- you know the, the only things we couldn't put in the film are things that legally would have got us in trouble which is, which is the libelous stuff, which is, as far as I'm aware, true, but you don't, you can't put into people who are deceased or some of the financial reasons that Trojan struggled, which aren't necessarily very cinematic, but people who know the Trojan story might want to know more about. We couldn't really put that in because legally it's a, a real bind. So, you know, and also some songs you can't use because you can't clear them. The artists have you know, disputed the songwriting credits and stuff like that, so you can't use them on great tunes like Red Red Wine, for instance, is mm-hmm. in there. And that's painful because you can't tell that to everybody, do you know what I mean? But that's the sort of stuff that isn't in, I wish was in. Nothing that I necessarily would say was, you know, story-wise. It's, it's all pretty much there. Yeah, and, and one of the things, and you kind of touched on this, but one of the things that I really liked about the film is that this is as much a story of Trojan Records, you know, the, the subtitle of the film, as much as almost a story of Jamaican independence, the the following immigration to, to England, and basically like kind of like the culture that even allowed for, this label to to begin i think in the film the the chapter of trojan records doesn't even come in until i want to say around like the 25 minute mark so you build up this this all of this history that kind of like culminates in the existence of this of this label well that was very conscious because i felt that you couldn't understand you couldn't just dive in straight at trojan you have to know that the sort of soil that it grew in very much you know like uh duke reed the trojan is the sort of patron saint of the whole thing. So the name Trojan is very important. That began 10 years before the formation of Trojan in the sound system era in Jamaica. Now the sound system era in Jamaica is a film in itself, incredible amount of characters, incredible amount of stories. And I'm pretty sure someone's making one about it now. But we only really needed to know where the Trojan came from because Trojan meant something in that cultural sort of mix. The people knew that name from, from back home in Jamaica. So we set he's in it as this kind of and he made records that went through to the Trojan catalogue in the early stages of the label so it was like okay we'll, we'll tell that bit you need to know that Scar's beginnings because Scar is really the beginnings of independent music in Jamaica which goes on to grow into reggae and late rock study which is what forms the basis of the Trojan catalogue and so it felt that we had to just pick the bits we needed to deliver the audience to the right space. You needed to know that hundreds of thousands of people moved here, moved to the UK from Jamaica, you know, and that created a breeding ground of, you know, an audience in a foreign land for music. You know, that all that mm-hmm. stuff felt important. 
not the total history, but it's the history you need to know to understand Trojan records. So the idea was, how long can we push it before we bring Trojan in? And what I tried to do is make it, make it a sort of celebration of all that history, a sort of like, yes, you know, we've made it, we've got our own record label, and then obviously the story unfolds further. So it was, it was a difficult balance because it is about Trojan records, but I always, you know, any filmmaker, I guess, gets asked the same question about any film you make. It's always like, what's it about? And you say what it's about, and then someone goes, well, what's it really about? <laughs> and actually, what, what is this film about? Well, it's about Trojan records. What's it really about? It's about immigration, migration of people, cultural sharing, and the power of music to, 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 to do stuff that... Uh, religion and politics and all those kind of institutions can't do and I think that, that that was why you need to know all that stuff because it felt like with this story not with every record label or not with every every music specific story it could go there you know for, the, for the, a modern audience you know and so that was that was the attempt I hope it's achieved it I mean I still feel very close to the film so I find it hard to be objective um, but it's very nice when people notice that that's what we were trying to do. Now, one of the things that, that you did, and I think you know, uh, it was stylistically a very interesting choice, is that you use um, kind of like recreation, reenactment footage. So like it's it's new footage that is filmed now to kind of capture the, the style and the spirit of you know the late 50s, 60s, and into the 70s. As you were kind of thinking about the film, you know, and, and one of the things that kind of that really caught my, my thought process was... It almost feels like there's there's almost like a film like This Is England in this movie, you know, which obviously you know, was a was a snapshot of uh, like this, like 1983, 1983, 1983. So this is a little bit earlier, but it felt it feels very dramatic. Do you have any consideration or even to you know almost create a more of a narrative film versus a, a documentary to to tell this story? It was talked about, and and people are in documentaries. You know, some people just don't like recreations. You know. Some people just, you know, there, there was, it was hard to, to sort of free up the money to go to recreations instead of more interviews. So that was, it was, it was a real balance of like, how much can we push this drama? But what I knew we could do through using, you know, I'd watch things like uh, Ali, the Michael Mann film with Will Smith in. And at the, the beginning of Ali, it's got an amazing sequence of Sam Cooke singing Twisting the Night Away and, and the young Muhammad Ali, you know, boxing in the gym. And uh, and I remember watching that and going, you know, you believe this, you know, and, but you know that that's the Fresh Prince and you know that this isn't the real Sam Cooke. But there was this feeling that I had that, you know, through the right execution of, of camera work, you could make it work like it's playing out if you had the story laid down by their memories. So we got the interviews first and then we tied the drama just to what they were saying. So it's just an impressionistic version of what they were saying. And that felt like the most powerful way to do it rather than to turn it into a full drama where you suddenly had like, you know, conversations or snapshots of, you know, written scenes. It felt like it just feel like reaching a moment at its most important point and you leave it before you get told too much. You know, it became attention. And obviously, as I said earlier, the, the, the lack of archive of that, those scenes and those feelings meant that there was no choice. It's like, what are you going to show? Pictures, you know, when you try to create something to connect with people you have to go okay well we'd find some pictures and we'd build it you know it's really fun you'd build up you'd build up the production design based around a couple of photos you'd really get into how what people might have worn and obviously we don't have a load of money and it's got a multi-million dollar film so you're trying to dress people and make the costume work across the scene so it became a really fun part of the process that actually the the actors and the sort of spirit of it it started to take on more of a, a role in the film although we only filmed we filmed eight days of drama and actually it probably, I think, looks like we filmed much more, um, and uh, but we made it go a long way. You know, we, we, we really thought about the little bits you needed to 
to, to visualize what they were saying. And I think you definitely found like that balance, and, I, and that's how I certainly interpreted it as well, where we're seeing recreation or seeing like kind of a reenactment of the words of you know, who's being, you know, who's speaking at that time. And I think, and you, and you take a lot of care in trying to build the, the actor to represent the interview subject. Um, you can see, oh, yeah, okay, this is definitely like, you know, Bunny Lee. Like you, you make sure that the, the younger version of him is wearing his captain's hats. You know, okay, this is obviously yeah. Bunny Lee. So now you obviously, with this, you're kind of speaking of Bunny Lee. I mean, obviously you got a lot of, you know, great interviews in this, in this piece. You know, as a, as a fan, as, as you mentioned before, was there any artists that you know, have either passed away or you know that that you would have you know, wished you would have been able to get get you know their interpretation or their or their recollection of that time? Oh yeah, I mean, well, twofold. Certainly, have had a Duke Reed interview. Uh, that would be great. But I think you can handle that those guys aren't around. But I think Desmond Decker, he's a big part of that scene and was a real star at that time. And I think he would be an amazing person to had in that crunch bit of the film and actually having his friends like Freddie Notes talk about him uh, uh, and you know the guys from Trojan talk about him I think adds a weight to it but I think it would have been awesome to have Desmond Decker and also Jimmy Cliff and actually Jimmy Cliff's slightly complicated because we, we spoke to Jimmy Cliff quite a few times but his relationship with that period with Island Records at that time and and, and Trojan Records at that time meant that whilst he was happy for us to use the songs, uh, he didn't really want to talk about it. And actually, I kind of get it because, you know, the, the, there's a business side that we, we struggled with all the artists to get behind because some of them felt that they were owed money and better contracts and they see you as, as part of the, the label. And we had to really win a lot of people over. You know, when we met Ken Booth, he was like, I was like, hi, Ken, I'm Nick. And he was like, you owe me £3,000 or something like this. And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, you owe me £3,000. I was like, Ken, I'm nothing to the record company. Like, I'm just here to like get this. And we had to win them over. And they, they were brilliant with us, but they, they take it personally because they did feel they got a, the, the, you know, the wrong end of the stick. And, and that is you know, above my pay grade. Um, and certainly not anyone who's part of Trojan now's responsibility. It's very much just a the poor management of the record companies at that time. It would have been great to have Jimmy, but at the same time, his music's in it. He was only released as one album on Trojan, and a couple, you know, he's just, he, he probably is a different type of... A, you know, he's not the soul of Trojan the way someone like a Dandy Livingston is, or a Bunny Lee had a lot to do with it. You know, so it, it kind of is okay. But yeah, Desmond Decker, for someone who's not here anymore, and Jimmy Cliff for, for, uh, for, for now. But then also, you know, we've got Toots, and Toots is, you know got a storied history with both labels and he was happy to do it you know he was like a little raster superman just sort of rolled in and you know spent an hour with us in a breeze but um yeah it was amazing really because they're quite accessible as artists in a more traditional rock and roll world you never get to them like you get to people in reggae like they are it's still quite an inexclusive scene you can, you can certainly get to these people um, and maybe that's because they didn't make billions and billions in, 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 in money so they, they, they still feel part of it so nicholas thank you very much for you know speaking with me today so really i just want to ask just as, as closing up the film is in you know doing the festival circuit right now are you aware right now of any coming down the line uh, availability through streaming blu-ray or potentially even a theatrical run where you know fans will be able to see the film uh, aside from the festival run what's happening is it's in the crunch stages of working out what what's going to happen to it in the new year so the only thing I can really advise is to go to trojanrecords.com forward slash rude boy documentary and just keep going for updates. I'm pretty sure January, February, we'll start to see things um, for accessibility and stuff because it feels like an exciting time. But it's just, it's not something I'm necessarily used to or an expert in, but that's the, that's very much what's going on with the movie at the moment. It's, 
this is the period to find out where it will be. Well, again, Nicholas, thank you very much for your for your time today. Really love the film, and you know, for, as everyone's listening, to, to keep an eye on uh, on a release date down the line to see this. Okay, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Lovely. Cheers. Well, I hope you enjoyed that uh, conversation. Uh, opened you up into uh, the mind of uh, Nicholas and uh, his thought process into the making of uh, the documentary. Uh, I do have to say, I actually, uh, I really did enjoy uh, the documentary. Uh, I, as I said at the beginning of the show, I thought it was um, a really good intro um, to the label, especially for those that must, might just have a passing knowledge um, of the label and just be kind of interested in getting a, uh, a first round, uh, like look, kind of look into um, the, 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 the record label. Um, and, uh, you know, but for those that are really, you know, really know the music, um, I felt like it was a good kind of like refresher, um, but I know there's just so much more that the documentary just was not able to uh, hit. I mean, there's obviously things you're gonna have to you know drop out in the course of uh, 90 minutes, and um, that's exactly what happened uh, here. Um, but for those that are that are more interested, um, you know, in getting more details around Trojan Records itself, um, this is their 50th year anniversary, so they're going all out with. Uh, coffee table books and uh, just information that they're really putting out there. Um, so there's definitely a wealth of information um, available uh, to those that want to get in depth with the label itself. And uh, speaking of the label, of course, um, I would be remiss if I didn't play uh, a couple of tracks uh, from the label after listening to that documentary. So we are going to do a couple uh, Trojan releases here and uh, we're going to start this set off uh, with Trojan Records first number one single. This is Dave and Ansel Collins with Double Barrel, right here on 100% Ska. I am the Magnificent. I'm back with the shaker was so boss, most turning, storming, sound of soul. I am W-O-O-O, and I'm still here.
our nice little Trojan Records set. Uh, that's for uh, uh, Rude Boy, uh, the story of Trojan Records, and uh, our guest this week, uh, Nicholas Jack Davies. So again, thank you for your time uh, in speaking with me, and I hope you found that interview uh, really great. Um, something of note uh, was that um, in the in the Q&A afterwards, uh, so he was in attendance for the screening, um, he actually mentioned something which was really fascinating, which was that uh, his his crew, so he went down to Jamaica, obviously, to film part of this documentary, and his local crew um, in Jamaica, Jamaicans, um, were really not aware of Trojan Records and the songs that were released. Um, I guess they, they were kind of talking about it, how this was just like all kind of oldies music to them, like they really weren't aware of it. Um, and so these, you know, this, this crew was basically being exposed to a lot of this music um, and ideas for the very first time as the documentary was being made. So I found that really, um, really interesting. I, I really would have expected that, um, you know, this music would almost be kind of, you know, certainly oldies, but like classics almost that like, you know, you would just naturally know these songs uh, down there, but it's potentially 
uh, not the case for the for the younger uh, generation. So that's even also like uh, I think partially an important reason for uh, this documentary is that this music and this this label and what it did, um, you know, in terms of like bridging, uh, you know, the you know different very different cultures in. Uh, in England, uh, you know, so important to keep that you know fresh in mind, that we don't we don't lose that uh, to history. Um, and obviously, a lot of the music that we that we play here on we the collective we um, royal we as it would be, um, you know, every every you know episode here, um, so much of this music is you know kind of a, a direct descendant or or at least you know a spiritual descendant um, of of Trojan. Obviously, all that music, you know, not just Trojan, but Studio One and Blue Beat uh, and and Treasure Isle and all down the line, um, you know, so important to this to this music. And uh, for our next set here, we are actually going to start off the song the set with um, a band that I think you know really is you know directly influenced, um, even down to their their name itself, um, you know, directly influenced by all this you know original uh, Jamaican music and, and and music made by Jamaicans. And so this is uh, the Blue Beat Makers. Uh, with their song, You've Been So Nice, right here on 100% Supply. <laughs>
been away way too long, but you're always on my mind. I've been away way so long, but this melody kept going strong. Yeah, 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 yeah. This your music so sweet.
Thank you. Thank you. And thank you. Uh, that was uh, Mob Town uh, live uh, in 1993, I want to say, uh, with their song Coming to Get Ya. Uh, recorded for the uh, Blackpool compilation series uh, way back when. Uh, before that, you heard uh, Monty Naismith, who actually recorded with uh, Simurp, a, uh, a Trojan Records label, or I'm sorry, uh, Trojan Records uh, band uh, back in the day, uh, 1970. Um, and that track, uh, he was backed by uh, the Bishops from... Uh, Nebraska. I'm trying to think. Boise, I believe they are from, uh, but definitely from Nebraska. And that was uh, their song "Jump," a uh, new song uh, recording there. Uh, before that, you heard uh, "Westbound Train" with "Check Your Time," and starting off the set there were the Blue Beat Makers uh, with "You've Been So Nice," and it's been so nice uh, to record for you uh, this evening. I hope you're enjoying the uh, show. Uh, wherever and whenever you may be uh, listening. And as always, we will be back um, in another week or so with another uh, uh, show. And uh, in the meantime, you know, if you ever want to go back and listen to some old uh, episodes, you can find those on djryanmidnight.com. And you can also catch up on any uh, upcoming uh, DJ shows, sets, um, or shows that I am supporting uh, on, this set, on the site uh, as well. So, again, thank you very much for uh, listening. We'll see you next week. And to finish off the, sh the show here, we've got from uh, Seoul, South Korea, this is Kingston Rudiska with East and West. Thanks for listening. Take care.